Hey, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name's Noah, you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, I make 12-tone, and today we have a special guest, he's a real up-and-comer in the world of uh, music YouTube, you want to introduce yourself? Hi everybody, my name is Adam, um, from the YouTube channel, Adam. Uh, <laughs> Adam Neely, that's my name, I make a YouTube channel about music and music education, music composition, and yeah, thanks for having me guys. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Of course, yeah. We asked Adam what he wanted to talk about today, and what did you tell us, Adam? Well, one thing that I love talking about, and you'll meet a lot of other people who have this who love talking about it, uh, is synesthesia. It's the pairing of two or more senses, and usually the way that it manifests for musicians is uh, you kind of have associations between musical sounds and colors. And that's, uh, yeah, I, I kind of have that. I have um, what's called grapheme color synesthesia, where like the note A has a certain redness about it. And uh, the note C has a certain yellowness about it. And the note D has a certain tealishness about it. I, like every note has a certain color. Like a lot of other musicians who have synesthesia, a lot of other people who have synesthesia. And I thought it would be kind of fun to talk about the relationship of music and color with you guys. We can all relate to it for sure. Yeah. I remember in high school when I first learned about synesthesia, I was like real bummed that I didn't have it, you know? Well, it's fun. I won't say that it's like particularly useful. It's not like perfect pitch where, you know, you can like, hey, that's a C. That yeah. Car horn is a C sharp or whatever. It's a fun pairing that I say this a lot. I say that everybody has synesthesia to some degree or another because it's how we understand the world around us on kind of a pretty fundamental level using language. So... Uh, you know, the way that we describe musical sounds and the way that we describe sound is pretty synesthetic. Like, you know, there might be a sharp sound or a like a flat sound or a dull sound or a punchy sound. And those are all adjectives which are used to describe other senses other than our sense of hearing. And you don't think about it that often that way. You think about like, oh, yeah, that sound is, I don't know, bright, a bright sound. But that's a visual pairing with a oral pairing. And you know, we have this kind of relationship between language and senses, how we sense the world in a very deep way. And they often cross between senses in a way that uh, we don't think about that often, but it manifests in a pretty literal way with synesthesia. And that's, you know, I th that's kind of a cool thing. I was just going to say that brings me to a really interesting question for you, like right off the bat there, because something that I know of very common descriptions in both sound and color are warm and cool and like a warm sound versus a cool sound. Is there a kind of dissonance for you? Let's say you're hearing, you said an A is red. Let's say you're hearing and red is a warm, a hot color. Is there any kind of dissonance if someone is describing something that sounds red to you, but the timbre of it is kind of a cool sound? Does that make sense? What's your experience with something like that? Yeah, I will say that because it's a grapheme-based synesthesia, meaning that it relates specifically to like letters, it's like it's not tied to music specifically, although there's a relationship because the way that I interact with music is very often, you know, based on like, oh, that's an A minor scale. So I like there's an A involved in my like conception of the sound. Yeah. And so they call that an idiesthesia or ideasthesia. I don't really know how to pronounce it, but idiesthesia is when there's a colored conception of a sense. It gets very like 
kind of abstract at a certain point. But I will say that since I don't have perfect pitch, if I hear like a note and I don't know that it's an A, it's not red. But the second that somebody tells me that it's an A and I'm thinking of it as an A, it is red. It's kind of confusing. That's that I, really interesting. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of confusing. But the way that it like it manifests is music videos. If I listen to a song and then I I learn it and then like I think oh yeah this song feels like yellow to me because it's it's like in C or C sharp minor or something like that and then there's a music video and there's like a color grade that isn't yellow it feels very off to me for some reason so it must like really bother you watching like explainer videos that like I do or Vox does or things like that where they lay out notes on a scale and they pick random colors for each of those notes <laughs> Like my favorite things, like the, our, our collaboration that yeah, we did. That's such yeah. a purple song. Don't know why there wasn't as much purple in that video. It was. <laughs> See, that's so interesting to me because as someone without synesthesia, I think of that as a blue song. Mm, and I think I okay. think of it as a blue song because that's what the album ar- artwork looks like. That's kind of where I relate to that. It's Coltrane on a blue background. So I just think of it as a blue song, which I think is interesting. <laughs> But you have that association, though. That's interesting because for you, when you're just like creating color palettes for your explainer videos, how do you go about creating that color palette? Like, what are you thinking uh, specific to the song? A lot of the time it'll come from like drawing on the aesthetics that the musicians themselves or their labels or whatever, like album artwork, band posters, stuff like that. Mm. Um, but then there's there there are certain people like, and I mean, I think this is very deliberate and one of the great things about the White Stripes, but like the White Stripes, you listen to the White Stripes and in my mind, I just hear red, white, and black. I mean, one of my first videos was kind of about how the White Stripes have curated this relationship between color and sound not necessarily through their music but through everything around their music through how they dress on stage through their posters through their album art whenever I'm looking for stuff a lot of the time it's kind of pulling from adjacent cultural objects or even just things like in the scene at the time like Mm -hmm. my Good Vibrations video I did very early is one of my favorite color palettes I've ever done and it was just kind of this bright colorful palette because in my mind that's what psychedelia was all about you know yeah well it just so happens that seven nation army is a red song so that that's good that there's like a correlation between there (laughs) it's a very a A minor is such a red but you know that that's interesting because there's such a you said cultural artifacts or cultural um visual cultural things that are associated with music yeah and I, i love that because music is not devoid of context there's always going to be some kind of context especially for with popular music and drawing on all of that creates a much broader picture of what music is rather than just sound it's how sounds created who is making the sound and you know i think of the synesthesia as like just another layer to it because it's personal that's the best thing about synesthesia like the most interesting thing i think is that the specific color associations are not logical and they're different for everybody who has it so for somebody else, their G might be green. I think they are completely wrong because G is very clearly a brown note. Uh, <laughs> brown note. <laughs> um, but it, it's pretty cool because uh, everybody has very particular personal associations with the sound. And I think that's just another interesting aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, I've mostly been chilling here, uh, not adding in that much <laughs> just because... 
like it's a weird discussion for me to sort of sit in on because I think I mentioned mm. to y'all I have aphantasia. So mm. like I don't see things in my head at all. So when I when you say like you hear the song and you think like red or whatever, it's not something that I can relate to. What I well, want to come back to with, with oh go ahead. Oh yeah, no, I, I'm fascinated about aphantasia in particular because do you have um are you able I'm assuming you can, but I might be mistaken. Like, what is uh, your relationship to audiation, hearing things in, inside your head? I can't really do that very well. Um, what I can do, because I'm a vocalist, I have vocal training, is I can move. I think I can convince myself I'm hearing melodies in my head, but I think what I'm actually doing is physically moving my vocal cords in ways that feel like they are leading to those changes in melody. And so I can think about sound i can think about music but like if you ask me to imagine a major triad in my head i don't really have a great conception internally of what that sounds like that's an external thing for me interesting okay yeah because i've never you know i've read about aphantasia made ear training class really hard but uh yeah yeah wow i mean but the fact that you're a vocalist and that you're able to yeah manifest that through some kind of physical memory is a huge benefit in that regard, because you have the you have it within you literally to reproduce it. But I just haven't seen that much discussion about aphantasia and I guess a audiation, like being able to hear things in your head yeah. versus not hear the things in your head. Noah, do you hear things like in your head constantly? Okay. All right. Oh yeah. Interesting. I, I hear and and I've and I see things in my head very clearly. I mean, it's very essential to my to my process and to making videos uh, like I do to be able to envision them in your head. Yeah, I mean, um, it's interesting because we all live, we all live, we all, uh, we all work in a visual media. We all live on YouTube. We all live on YouTube. Yeah. It is where we have made our homes for better or for worse. This is really scary being not on YouTube right now. But yeah, it's a visual medium and we all have to communicate something about music through a visual medium. And we've all done it in very different ways, but all related to this format. And it, it's, I think of editing uh, on YouTube in a very musical way, the sense that like there's a certain timing, there's a certain pace, there's a certain like feeling to how you put together a video edit, at least for what I end up trying to do. Do you guys think about that at all, about the relationship of music to video editing or to YouTube videos? Sometimes I do. I mean, a lot of the time I'll do things like kinetic typography and stuff like that. And when you're doing that, there's just naturally kind of a rhythm to it that you need to do. Like you're going along with the music or things like that. And when I edit, to, generally when I edit to music, I think in musical terms, but I don't know if I'd say like in terms of, Things like pacing and and that sort of thing. I need to think on that. I'm not really sure if I think of that in musical terms. I mean, I think the other thing, too, that separates me from the two of you is I played music in high school and did high school music classes and, like, jammed with friends and stuff like that. Beyond high school, I don't really have any kind of a formal education in music. I'm coming at music a lot more from the kind of... Or, or at least a formal education in performance or theory. I'm coming at it more from the kind of cultural, musicological, like music journalism side of things. So when I'm editing videos, when I'm putting together the visuals, I'm actually thinking a lot more how, kind of to go back to what I was saying earlier, like how does this fit into how we as a culture view this style of music? Kind of how does this visual fit historically into where this music fits historically? That sort of thing. Yeah, and 
On my end, I would say that I mostly think of it not necessarily musically, but narratively. But then if I look at mm. how I analyze music, I tend to analyze very narratively as well. So mm. I tend, I, I would say that there's sort of two manifestations of the same core idea and that they are therefore connected but i wouldn't necessarily say that i'm actively thinking you know like bars of video or anything like that <laughs> well i know there was one conversation or i saw maybe discussion on twitter at some point where you Corey, were talking about frame rate as it relates to bpm and how that just makes it easier to animate oh yeah like what exactly was that uh you're saying yeah so basically when I do, th this is not purely from an editing convenience standpoint, but whenever I make my own musical examples, I will set them such that they are a fact, such that the BPM of whatever I'm doing is a factor of 900, because that means that the eighth notes are an even number of frames at 30 uh, frames per second. And so I don't have to measure anything. I can just go in and be like, okay, this is like if I do it at 100 BPM, then it's like, okay, this is nine frames, then nine frames, then nine frames, and I don't have to check all the things. Whereas when I do two recordings, I have to like go and find like this is where this like attack begins, and then this is where this one begins. And especially like if they didn't record to a click track, that can fluctuate and it gets really difficult to nail down. And it's just so much easier for me if I just like I just do the scale and I'm like, okay, nine frames per note, it's fine. When I'm editing to music, I often, it can be incredibly, incredibly frustrating, specifically because someone will sing a word and I'll want to have that word pop up the moment that it starts, but the moment that it starts happens to be in between two frames. So the relationship between frame rate and tempo is something that is a hindrance for yeah. me a lot of the time. For me, that doesn't wind up being a huge problem just because my motion is fairly fluid. So as long as it's, you know, if it's within a f like half a frame or so, it looks fine. Yeah. But like when you're doing like things like popping up, like discrete events, I could see that being pretty difficult and frustrating. And this is exactly what I was kind of referencing when I'm saying a musical kind of approach to editing. Or maybe I'm, I'm thinking of editing this way because... This is the kind of thing that I would obsess over when I'm doing edits of a bass guitar track to a drum track, like trying to judge whether or not the bass should be a few milliseconds ahead of the kick drum, behind the kick drum, what it like what feels the best. And it seems like it's that's the same and I've had this experience too. Yeah, I would say it's similar to music production. I just don't do a lot of music production, so it's not what I think of as thinking musically. Gotcha. Yeah. But now that you put it in that framework, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> and again, I don't know if this is necessarily thinking of it as music or it's just a lot of art shares these things. Because you could say the same thing about writing with this, but like a lot of the time I'll have ideas and themes that I'll go back to or I'll in a video have a visual theme and be like, oh, I liked that theme. I'm going to bring it back later in the video and improvise on it a little bit. Like that kind of stuff. But I don't think of it that way in my head. But I it's I feel like it'd be easy to kind of read it that way when you look at it through the music lens. That just triggered a, a thought in, about my work is like, if you look at the way that I use drawings, I think they could make a pretty clear argument that some of the drawings I use are effectively leitmotifs. Hey. <laughs> like, for... <laughs> well, I was, I was going to say motivic development. Yeah. That, I think, is a, an important part in any YouTube video. 
And not to draw it back to memes or anything like that, but having some kind of recurring theme to keep you grounded in the style of an individual creator or the like the universe of an individual creator. Yeah. It goes a long way. And I, I'm always thinking of that musically. I'm always thinking of that as like a just because that's my training, that's where I came from, that's kind of the stuff that I ended up growing up with. You know, when I brought that to video editing and to YouTube, which is something that I just kind of ended up doing, it was like, yeah, Final Cut Pro is basically the same thing as GarageBand, except you're playing with video clips instead of audio clips. But the same kind of approach ended up being useful. I was just thinking of the visual thing musically just kind of came naturally to me. It feels like we've diverged a lot from synesthesia, but I think this is all very still related. And I think it's really interesting because I think what synesthesia is kind of a very clear, literal example of that we're getting into with all of this is that, and Corey and I were even talking about this last week, is that music is more than just music. Music is this complicated thing with all of these other aspects that tie into it and how you listen to music will shape the ways that you watch movies and how you watch movies will shape the ways that you listen to music and onwards. Yeah, the term that I love um, is a Christopher Small term, musicking to music is how you listen to music or how you participate in music making is ultimately the most important thing, not the sound itself. And there's this deep desire to look at music as this sound that is completely devoid of context. But, you know, that makes no sense. When you're listening to a film score, when you aren't pairing it with the visual, it is like just a completely different thing altogether. When you're like listening to a band on your headphones on like your commute, that's a fundamentally different experience and fundamentally different thing than when you're actually at a concert with other people experiencing the music and like feeling that energy in a live environment performed by live humans. Like it's so totally radically different, but we think of them as the same thing because it's all music, but it isn't. There's like much more to it. <laughs> One example of that that really sticks out for me is that there's a clear difference in my mind listening to a piece of music that I have performed, mm, right? Yeah. That if anything that I've ever been on stage singing, even if I'm not singing it now, even like I, I haven't been a performing vocalist for close to probably over half a decade now. Yeah, wow, that's a weird realization. Anyway, um, these things are still ingrained in my head. Like when I listen to Aqualung or when I listen to like, I'm blanking on any other song I've ever performed, John Barleycorn. That, <laughs> I did John Barleycorn. It went, okay, yeah. The fact that I have sung this for an audience is just such a, a fundamental part of the experience of then going back and listening to it that I can't or wouldn't want to separate out of it. There's songs that I played in my like high school band like a decade ago that when I listen to them, my mind is still doing the bass fingerings for them in my head. I wish I could separate the experiences sometimes. Like I've had songs ruined by that because I've played them in like wedding bands or something like that. Um, <laughs> I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. Amazing bass line. Un unbelievable bass line. So, f so fun. It's oh. a great song. Yeah. I would never listen to it ever again, <laughs> ever, because the experience was so much tied to fairly negative performing aspect to it, which was playing weddings and going down this kind of um may maybe it wasn't the greatest experience for me at the time when i was doing that like four or five years ago so there's such a negative experience too there can be an amazingly positive experience and a negative experience with a piece of music but you can't just think of it as the sound 
that is divorced from the personal experience or from the broader cultural experience. And, you know, trying to tie it back to synesthesia, because that was, in theory, the point of this. Uh, I want you back as an orange song. Fun fact. (laughs) (laughs) On the synesthesia thing, your mention of film scores actually made me think about synesthesia, because I bet you that there are millions of people in the world that you would not be able to play them the opening theme of Game of Thrones without them envisioning the title sequence. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I definitely can envision it. I hate to always bring it back to weddings, but this was a, a big part. This was a big part of my Wait, like. Did you, did you play this at uh, a wedding? I did. Yeah. Uh, there That's was a couple amazing. that walked walked down the aisle to the Game of Thrones theme. But That's like, amazing. But like. It wasn't performed very well. <laughs> like we hired, I was doing contracting work for this this wedding company and we hired some people at the last moment. We didn't know how good they were. And there was a cellist and a violinist and I did this arrangement and they just butchered the Game of Thrones theme. So just imagine a couple like walking down the aisle to the Game of Thrones theme played very poorly. So I have multiple associations with this wonderful piece of music, the opening sequence to this to Game of Thrones and then also this wedding in Connecticut in 2017 that was (laughs) botched. (laughs) I think that brings me nicely into another question that I was going to ask as well, um, because I personally have another association beyond the Game of Thrones theme. When I hear it, I also picture my edits of my working titles episode on the Ah. Game of Thrones title. And I was going to (laughs) say, Adam and Corey, do you ever kind of have that with songs that you've made videos on where you can't listen to a song without thinking about your video and thinking, damn, I should have done this differently in my video. Yes. Jareth, uh, my sibling, can attest to this. Like every time we're driving in the car and uh, any song I've done an analysis of comes on the radio, I'll always just instinctively be like, hey, did you know there's music theory to this song? (laughs) (laughs) Because my brain immediately starts thinking about my analysis. (laughs) Just... Duh, that's that's hilarious. Uh, the the sea shanty. Uh, I did a sea shanty video recently, and of course, like you know, the Wellerman was everywhere. But yeah, I listened to the Wellerman a lot for that video, so I I have this associations with that. I don't do as many like song specific videos anymore. Yeah, but yeah, that's definitely happened. Uh, the girl from Ipanema was probably my last one, and yeah, I've listened to that video was phenomenal. By the oh, way, thank you. But yeah, like doing the analysis and doing the video definitely changes it. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that like anyone, whether it's as a performer, as a journalist, as a YouTuber, anyone who has worked with music and is lucky enough to work with music can tell you that it is a blessing and a curse. And that, like, when music is your job, music is never really the same anymore. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this in our first episode. And I think partly when you do an analysis, part of the point is to uncover things you didn't already know, right? Like, Mm. if I go into a song and only find things that I already expected to find, then what was the point? And so when I look at my analyses, like, I'll think back and be like, oh, hey, this had this feature or like the message in a bottle analysis that I did where I was like, oh, the verse never plays the one chord and that has real narrative significance. And people disagreed with me on that. They're wrong. (laughs) I'm right. That's how music theory works. There is a correct answer. But it's just like, it felt, it feels different listening to that song now because I know this fact, like, consciously instead of just sort of absorbing the impact of it subconsciously yeah there's another aspect to that so like there's the analysis of it and like looking into it but then there's also the performance aspect to like listening to a a particular song i've 
learning how to play a song physically informs also how you, at least for me, it informs how you listen to it. Because now there's this aspect of it of the embodied performance being kind of tied to it. So you can imagine yourself playing it or imagine yourself singing it or um, imagine yourself like partaking in a different way. You know, there's so many different ways of engaging with a piece of music and the act of, you know, I don't want to say it's a quantum state or whatever, but the act of interacting with it changes it. Yeah. That's a really well, bad we'll, we'll analogy. Call it quantum. Let's, let's annoy the physicist. This is a quantum effect. <laughs> let's call it the quantum effect. We're not physicists. We don't care. <laughs> we'll stick quantum on the, on the podcast title. Yeah. <laughs> the quantum <laughs> <Perfect>. effect. <laughs> If you play music through two slits, you get an interference pattern. <laughs> yes, there we go. Something, something. Um, two sine waves. Actually, yeah. there, there might be, you know, the, anyway. <laughs> Bring in the acousticians. We'll, we'll figure this out. Where were we? <laughs> you were talking about how, like, embodied performance and how learning to play a song changes the experience of listening to it. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I'm coming from all of this from the perspective of a bass player, first and foremost. I like to think of myself as a bass player who happened to make a YouTube channel that I talked about other things. But I'm always coming from it from the perspective of a performer. And when you're listening to music and engaging with music from the perspective of, like, an instrumentalist, you're going to approach it in certain ways. So, like, samba music, for example. From Brazil, the way that I would typically approach it or think about it is I would always be thinking about the surdo rhythm, like, because as a bass player, that rhythm is, like, really the thing that I would do. That's me contributing to the music if I were to play it. And so I'm naturally, as a listener, going to be very much attached to that rather than what is it, the uh, cavaqueño, the uh, ukulele instrument that is like very much um, like the high end, the high end like um, harmonic percussion stuff. I can key into that, but that's not my immediate reaction to listening to samba music. It's much more from the perspective of like, hey, this is the thing that I do, and I'm going to tie into that. It's if I'm listening to Motown, it's James Jamerson's bass lines that I'm really, really like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's everybody should. It's not just bass players. Uh, but, you know, it's... Uh, this is why bassists put on funk anytime you hand us the aux cable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, as a vocalist, when I listen to music, most of the time, the first thing I'm keying in on is also the bass. Mm. Just and good taste. I should, to be fair, I have a bit of bass background. I played, took bass lessons in high school. I could fake my way through an easy bass gig. Please don't ask me to actually perform on bass, but uh, that's what I do most of the time, <laughs> faking my way through bass gigs. <laughs> but like, I have some experience playing bass. It is my first like non-vocal instrument. Well, first real non-vocal. That's not true. I played baritone horn in elementary school. But once I started being a musician, bass was my first real non-vocal instrument. But it's just like, the bass is the best part. I don't think that necessarily has to do with playing it. It's just the best part of the music. So that's just science. We've had uh, these kinds of conversations, Corey and I, on this podcast a little bit. But I always think it's really interesting to hear just the way that different people, and, and it's completely based on their background, like engage with music on a core level. Because I've said to Corey, like... When I when I first listen to a song, the first thing that my mind is doing is not saying what's going on musically. The first thing that my mind is doing is saying, where does this fit culturally? Mm. Where, where, where do you slot this into the world? And I think it's interesting because usually 
uh, even very contemporary stuff. Uh, I'm not, I, I usually like get into albums three to four years after they've come out. And I think a lot of that is because then I have the kind of cultural context and I can look at it uh, from a distance. So no real point, just interesting. <laughs> I, I love finding these little differences between how people engage with music. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, I was thinking about how I first engage with a new piece of music like seriously that I haven't heard before. And when I say seriously, I mean like listening to it and dissecting it. And it's for me, it always ends up being a dynamic. Like I've been getting more and more into ideas of embodied cognition. Like yeah. what does it make me feel rather than worry too much about harmonic analysis or melodic analysis or timbral analysis? Because honestly, maybe timbral analysis is, is interesting to me, but I, I know I've gone up and been trained in the university system on how to analyze a piece of music harmonically. I can do that. And it's nice to know that the one chord goes to the four chord, but that for most pieces of music, that doesn't seem like contemporary pieces of music, that doesn't seem to be the main gist, like the main point. Yeah. And so I'm much more associating everything with groove, like the micro rhythms, like uh, the tails, the like when a certain for example, an 808, like the tail of an 808, when does it end? Why does why did it end that way? How does that relate to how I might move to this? How I might dance to this? Like listening to certain frequency spectrum, like the uh, the hi-hats, why are they tuned this way? Um, let me listen on a couple of different speakers to do this. So it's like still come approaching music from a very analytical perspective, but uh, using a different set of analysis, I guess, techniques than what I was trained in because I was trained to not listen to music quite that way. But because I'm doing a lot of music production now and because I'm doing a lot of stuff which does require my ear to listen to music technically, but not from a harmonic and melodic analysis standpoint, the way that I approach all music now is very much different than what it was, how I was doing it 10 years ago. And I think that's that's interesting, Noah, that you're saying that you're approaching things from a cultural perspective, because to you, I'm guessing that's the thing that gets you excited and most relating to the music is how how does this relate yeah. to society at large other musicians other bands the people who listen to the music like what are they taking from this why is that important you know that's just another another important piece of the puzzle <laughs> one of the first things that i will notice if you ever play a new song for me it's a very high chance i'll say oh this kind of sounds like this artist doing something by this artist or something like that. Like, I think a lot of people from the kind of music journalism, music criticism side, you see a lot of that in music reviews. They'll kind of compare something to a piece by another artist or even compare something to an earlier piece from the same artist's career or something like that. And that's kind of where our side of the musical conversation kind of draws from and goes. For sure. Speaking as like, you know, I wear a fair number of hats on YouTube, an analyzer of music and maker of YouTube videos and stuff. But the idea of artist comparison is interesting to me because that's something that never crosses my mind, or at least Same. I try not to have it cross my mind. But that is an important thing because that's how many people will relate to music. So being aware of that and training myself to be aware of that has been a part of the journey, I guess, being like stylistic comparison. Some of this is like, oh, that's a surface level understanding. Like, you know, maybe this artist wasn't even thinking about it, but know that maybe they were thinking about these other um, people and the relationships of 
between different songs and not being aware of it or like maybe things were being borrowed unconsciously. I don't know. But it's a, a new approach to listening to music that I haven't been doing as much recently. Yeah. What I find interesting about it too is I don't really think it matters whether they were thinking or intending it or not, especially nowadays. Things are just in the zeitgeist. People just know songs and know artists. And I mean, Steely Dan, who are one of my favorite bands, I know a ton of people who would say they couldn't name a Steely Dan song, but I could play five that they could sing along nearly every word to, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's very true. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, um, I was in a cab recently listening to Madonna's Vogue. I was thinking, like, I don't know the first time I listened to Madonna's Vogue. I have no idea how I know that this is Madonna's Vogue. I didn't not search it. I didn't, like, look up yeah. Vogue. I didn't go on YouTube. But I know this song intimately. I know every aspect of the song. Why? <laughs> Why do I know this? And it's because it, it has been in the air my whole life. And I don't uh, – that's kind of a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. Because you remember the first time you see a movie – but a song and why you know it, it could be anything. I mean, it goes to like the power of enculturation. Like the um, the example I remember from my world music teacher was just like, who taught you to sing happy birthday? <laughs> no one. <laughs> That's a really you, good point. You've known that your entire life. And it's just, there's so many of these things that we just absorb, especially like at a young age, like before we start forming a lot of long-term memories, we've already absorbed a lot of what, our culture's music is and obviously that can lead to a lot of not great things with people assuming that that's what music is in general but it's also just it's really it's really cool just how much we can learn about music just by sort of being in a culture that has a certain musical aesthetic bringing it back around to synesthesia um <laughs> <laughs> was that what this is yeah about? i think it's supposed to be i don't know you know um <laughs> but the uh so synesthesia is at least the current models, suggest that it's learned very early on yeah. in childhood development, the same way that perfect pitch is. And it's called a cross-modal relationship. So two senses, when you're learning early on, two senses get paired in an unusual way, like sight and hearing. But, you know, there's we have these cultural names for the senses, like red. Red is a cultural construct. Blue is a cultural construct. In fact, there's actually this uh, great... And I was talking to a Russian friend of mine. In the Russian language, there are two separate words, two separate categories for light blue and dark blue. And so color perception, if you grow up natively speaking Russian, is fundamentally different than if you grew up speaking English because Russian people are able to categorize the two words. Don't ask me what the words are, but they're able to categorize the words for light blue and dark blue much faster than English speakers are able to distinguish between light blue and dark blue. So there's like such a deep cultural correlation between our senses and how we grew <laughs> up, like where we grew up. So there's like a really fundamental aspect to this that I think is important to like emphasize. And uh, Corey, your, your example of who taught you happy birthday, you know, that was that was in the ether. That was, it's my birthright. It's like something so fundamental to me. Happy birthday. Only well, sung out of, out of tune um, by multiple people with gusto happy birthday it's also so funny because if you ever get like a bunch of people from different households to try to sing happy birthday together they'll all start at whichever yeah. tempo their household tends to sing it at 
I forget what it is, but there's like a weird rhythm thing where like everyone who sings it adds like a beat in one of the bars. I don't remember where, but that that's just like across, at least across like America, this is a really consistent thing. Uh, oh yeah, that there's just yeah. Mm. I know what where the uh, the measure is. It's uh, after you say the name of the person you're singing happy birthday to. There's a retardando like Corey. Happy. Happy. Yeah, and we're singing at different keys right now too. It's perfect. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) perfect example. Yeah, no, I um, just with family stuff. My grandmother is a trained singer, and so am I. And we'll be at family gatherings, and no one else is. And like she, like always tries to like let's be in key, and I'm always just like it's whatever. I'm not even gonna try to sing in key because it's not it's not worth it. It's not going to accomplish anything. Are you the kind that tries to harmonize? <laughs> no. All right, no. good. She is, but... <laughs> All right, okay, good. <laughs> just like, what am I harmonizing with, you know? But yeah, Happy Birthday is a great example of that. It's just, uh, this is something that is is really fundamental. I recently did a video on perfect pitch, which is similar to synesthesia and how it comes about. But one of the really like interesting aspects to this is people with perfect pitch, the ability to identify any pitch without reference. If you speak a tonal language like Mandarin, generally speaking, you are have a higher likelihood of developing perfect pitch at a young age. And especially if you have musical training where you're being trained to hear a sound and then say like, ah, that sound, that's that's A over there. And 74% of Mandarin speakers who had musical training between four and five in one study had developed perfect pitch, which it's like insane because the number that's normally given in the West is one in 10,000. Wow. So one in 10,000 English speakers develop perfect pitch, but 74% of Mandarin speakers with musical training developed it, which is pretty powerful suggestion that, you know, perception is so based on our like cultural upbringing Mandarin musical people get this perceptual boost and because of like how they were trained and how their their brain developed as they were growing. And yeah, I think that's an important thing to consider with just whenever we talk about how we listen to music, you know, where you come from is going to govern how you hear it. Hot take, hot take. Anyway. <laughs> Unless it's Beethoven, because then you're just going to be like, this is good. Everyone loves Beethoven. Oh, clearly. Objectively, yeah. objectively yeah. great music. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, they've done the science, Adam. Uh, yeah, I've I've read I'm all the science. Shaker did the science. <laughs> I, I, uh, I a hot take. Beethoven was pretty good. I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yeah. argue that. I mean, I don't listen to Beethoven, but I've had yeah. so many people like say that he's good, so he's probably good, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I believe that there are a lot of people who like Beethoven. I will concede that as being objectively true. Oh yeah, I'll leave that. Leave that to you guys. The <laughs> I don't I don't need to weigh in on that. Do you find that your synesthesia affects the way that you listen to or play music at all? No, not really. Unless I mean, it's come up actually in videos. I'll you know be doing musical examples, and then like I'll want to add color. Yeah. Like I want to add like you know if I want to highlight a chord or whatever, and then I'll just sit there like oh wait mm, that doesn't look good because the you know the chord needs to be red or whatever but then the problem is is then i'll just get like a page filled with like kind of random colors that don't look good really together but because they match my synesthesia like they kind of have to be the colors so it's weird because like the actual visual color harmony goes against yeah what my synesthesia is color harmony the 
I don't want to call it a science, but like the idea of like, oh, things across the color wheel go well together, like orange and blue, which, by the way, in 1707, Isaac Newton in his book Optics described the relationship of colors using musical terms. So he created a color wheel and then assigned every color in the color wheel a different note. And he said that orange and blue go well together because they are fifths. I don't know if he was being metaphorical. He probably was, but he was describing like the relationship between two tones. Like he said, like green and yellow don't go well together because they are seconds. And like things like that in the original book on optics, he had this musical metaphor going throughout the whole thing, which I think is really interesting. That's really cool. I didn't realize that. Yeah, his spectrum had seven colors. He added one to get to seven. I believe he added indigo just because seven was like a, I don't know if it was like, a sacred number or anything, but just, just to try and... It was yeah, a musical scale. Yeah, and so that, yeah, to align with that. But no, what, what I was wondering is just for your experience with this, assuming you know, let's say you know how to play a song mm. so that you are associating with like the colors because you know what key it's in and whatever. Do you ever have experiences where like you can't enjoy the sound as much as you otherwise would because the colors don't look good together? It rarely comes up. So I'll say this. If there was like a multimedia presentation going on while I'm playing a song and there is a lot of color that was not the right color of the song, like if I'm having to consciously think about the song, if I don't know the song that well and my hands aren't moving the way that they should be moving because I'm having to think or like, oh, the song's in the key of G. Oh, like what's the next chord? Oh, it's like a B7. All right. Like if I'm consciously thinking about the names of the chords and then there's also a multimedia presentation going on, which the colors aren't matching the things that I'm thinking about, that would probably be the only time that I would have some kind of dissonance. But for the most part, I'm not having to think two ways at the same time. The only thing that it really has come up is in YouTube videos where I'm having to color code things which don't have colors. And then like, this looks so wrong if a C major chord is green. (laughs) That is just, ugh, ugh, (laughs) wrong, (laughs) wrong. It's not as much of a help or hindrance as perfect pitch, but it's, uh, you know, it's a thing. It's a good party trick to pull out, I guess. Yeah, that's basically all it is, but I like talking about it, so I'm going to keep talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I could be wrong on this, but aren't there kind of documentations of people, like, getting synesthesia when they take psychedelics? Yeah, that does happen. I don't know too much about it, but I have heard of that a lot. Or, like, while on psychedelics having a synesthetic experience, and then that continues after their experience has concluded. Yeah. Historically, there's some interesting cases like synesthesia as a concept that was only described recently, but the composer Scriabin allegedly had synesthesia because he was very much, uh, he was working a lot with Kandinsky, who is a Russian painter who maybe also had synesthesia. So there's like a lot of color analogies that go on like Scriabin had his whole system worked out with the relationship of different key centers mm. to different colors. You know, there's like a lot of historical basis for this, but it's like, it's not super well documented on whether or not different composers had it, uh, but Scriabin probably did. Color theory and color theory tying to music theory, even outside of synesthesia, like you were talking about with that Newton thing, is so interesting to me as someone who works with color and music a lot. It's such an interesting thing because I personally, like, I guess like we were talking about earlier, I see that, but not in a kind of theoretical framework, you know? I see it through, I guess, like everything, the cultural framework. Yeah, yeah. That's why you're here. 
there's a there's a presentation I gave uh, like a couple years ago where you know if you think about what sound is right it's uh, vibrations in air and you can measure like how fast that vibration is and that's hertz so a is 440 hertz and then what you can do is you can calculate all right well an octave above a is twice that so it's not 440 hertz it's 880 hertz so if the air vibrates 880 times per second, that's also an A. And then you can keep multiplying that number times two higher and higher and higher. So 1760 hertz is also A and times two and times two. And you can just keep making that number higher and higher until it's outside of the, son like the sonic spectrum. So you can't hear it, but it's still A. The wavelength is still vibrating, but you just can't hear it. And if you multiply it enough times, like over and over and over again, you can get into the visible light spectrum in theory. Huh. And you can calculate what A would be in the visual light spectrum. And it turns out it's orange. And there's actually a great chart that you can find on New Age websites, which shows like the relationship between every color and a, you know, and the note. We see in one octave, meaning it's actually a little bit less than one octave, but the electromagnetic spectrum with which we see is like pretty narrow. It's the distance, I think, don't quote me on it, like 440 tetrahertz to 735 tetrahertz, something like that, trillions of times per second. That light, sounds like, right. It's vibrating. Yeah. It's... I don't know any better either. <laughs> don't take my I, I just, I made up some numbers. If you're listening don't to this podcast, just, just Google it. If you Go, yeah, just Google yeah. it. Don't, like, don't, it's don't. high numbers. I just said it authoritatively. <laughs> so maybe double check my math. But that's pretty cool, though. It's like you can make that relationship. Hey, you, you like we see in one octave. So there's like this uh, almost metaphor between literal color and literal sound that we can relate the two. When we're talking briefly about color theory, this is something that I know visual artists deal with a lot about like pairings of different colors, cool colors versus warm colors and whether or not they're complementary. And, you know, they'll say, I forget what it is, but like opposite colors or you know, it's whatever is the opposite thing across yeah. the... Complementary colors, That's the word. Like uh, magenta and uh, green or what... Teal or what... Oh, God. I don't know magenta. I just know the primary and secondary colors. Red and green, purple and yellow, blue and orange are the primary secondary pairs. I don't know beyond the tertiaries. That sounds about right. Yeah. But you can then think of that as like, oh, those are, yeah, those are fifths. That's G and D, that's A and E. And you'd be essentially right as it's calculated out in the color wheel, because when you look at the relationship of teal and orange, they are roughly in a three to two relationship in terms of their wavelength. And that ends up being a perfect musical analogy. Now, is it music? No, not no. necessarily, but it's a, but bring it back around to, what I was thinking about earlier is like, I like to think about the world and video editing through a musical analogy, because that's what I'm, where I'm coming from. And it's useful for me. It might be useful for other people, but it's not necessarily true, but it might be useful for you. So much of music is tied up in metaphors that we kind of create for ourselves to explain this intangible thing. Something, this is a little bit off topic from what we were talking about, but just all of this talk of kind of like color and music and color and metaphor and all of that just keeps making me think of the entire concept of the blues, 
which is an entire musical genre named after a color, but it's named after that color as a metaphor for a very specific emotion. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. We're going deep. Well, I was immediately thought of like the difference between cool jazz and hot jazz, yes. which are which are tactile expressions, but now also refer to an incredibly different kind of, you know, two different styles. Yeah, I mean, we use metaphor all the time to describe it because, you know, how else are you supposed to describe sound or anything without metaphor? Like, I actually have tried. I cannot think of a single adjective in the English language that only refers to sound. Yeah. Maybe you guys can help me figure... I can think of some that... primarily refer to sound but then those get adapted to something else like loud where there's, right. there's definitely loud colors but you know loud is a sound-based thing i can't think of anything that hasn't been adapted like that right no i was gonna say groovy but even that just meant cool for a while but groove is a is describing a physical thing like it's a groove and a yeah, LP record you know like yeah what about limp biscuity uh, uh, yeah <laughs> that's describing a hat position <laughs> no oh, i was thinking about the original very uh like not safe yeah, for, work, yeah. uh, for work. Yeah, we're not going to get into that. <laughs> but yeah, but then there's visual associations like Fred Durst and his, his hat. Oh, God. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, but that's the thing. It's like we, we will always adapt yeah. like uh, uh, ad- adjectives for one sense into another sense. Like there's never like just that literal sense. We yeah. like language is infinitely malleable and then we can use it to describe other things. And one thing that's interesting there is just the way that these, when they transfer when they cross over to different modes, they can sort of change associations with each other. Like one one example that I happen to know because I did a video about it uh, was the Yamaha DX7 uh, EPN01 setting was supposed to imitate the Fender Rhodes. And one thing that a lot of like keyboard players at the time would describe the difference as was that the Rhodes sounded warm, whereas the DX7 sounded bright. Mm. And in the context those words are originally meant for, those are not contradictory things. Warm things tend to be bright and bright things tend to be warm. You think of like fire, the sun, incandescent light bulbs. These are connected ideas. And yet once we've transferred them off to sound, one of them is a tactile thing. The other is a visual thing. And they just take on such different connotations that they become opposites. Yeah, that's that's a really great point. The warmth of a tone. Usually when you say a tone is warm, there is some degree of saturation. Yeah. There are less upper harmonics in the EQ, whereas bright yeah. tones are have higher... Pretty explicitly upper harmonics, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is also another interesting thing, kind of related, but, you know, we say that there are, like, high tones are, like, low tones. Like, we have a high-low metaphor pretty directly built into the sound of music, but that's not universal. This is something that kind of blew my mind. In Farsi... And there's like a native Mexican language called Zapotec, I believe. They have a like fat, thin metaphor to describe tones. So what we would consider high notes are thin notes. What we would consider low notes, they consider fat. That's really cool. I think that's interesting because like I have heard low notes described as fat, like a fat bass line, but I don't think I've ever really heard anyone describe high things as thin. It makes sense because, again, not not to, I don't know if I've mentioned that I'm a vocalist yet, <laughs> but when you think of like higher notes that you sort of flip up into head voice, we will talk about having like a thinner tone and you sort of thin out your tone as you get higher. 
And so those are sort of connected in that space, even if they're not necessarily in others. But one thing that I also wanted to point out, and Eric, please remind me to fact check this because I'm pretty sure this is true, but I may be misremembering. I read about this a long time ago. But when I was first learning about ancient Greek tetrachords, I believe they have the high-low association switched. Mm. So the note that we would call the bottom of a scale, they would talk about as the top. And so... In addition to sort of switching which sense we're comparing it to, there's not even necessarily this clear direction. Like you were sort of, to draw the analogy back to synesthesia, you were saying different people with synesthesia will have different color associations. And so in the same way, we look back and to us, it makes very little sense to think of like the top C on a piano. I even, I just said top, you know, the, the rightmost C on a piano being the lowest note. But that's not guaranteed. That's not specific because... It's not actually high or low in any sort of yeah. directional sense. We've applied that from a different space, and we can change how we interpret that space. Yeah, and you know, you, we immediately turn to the idea of trying to justify the metaphor. So, no, you're saying like, yeah. oh, I heard like fat bass notes, and like, yeah, I definitely feel that too. And like the idea of thinning out your vocal cords for like head voice like trying to find some kind of justification for it. And also like the high low, that one is in some ways like hard to even justify why we say certain notes are higher than others, maybe higher in number, like pitches are vibrating at a higher number, but fast slow might be a better metaphor if we're we're doing that for how fast or slow a pitch vibrates, but it's all metaphor. Yeah, I haven't done the research, but I would be shocked if the high-low terminology didn't predate our having any serious understanding of acoustics yeah. to the point where we could say high-low numbers. Yeah, no, I'm just trying trying to justify in whatever way yeah. possible. <laughs> it's so interesting, though, because, like, let's say you had an animation of a ball bouncing down the stairs, but on each step, mm. it hit a note that was increasingly higher. People would find that weird. Yeah. That would mess with people's head, again, just speaking to the power that these metaphors have. Whereas, like, if you have a series of descending notes and the ball rolls down the stairs and hits a descending, like, hits a subsequent note on each stair, that's, I mean, I've seen that animation, like, a dozen times, right? Yeah. But if you flipped that, I bet you there would be a weird strange kind of visceral reaction to that. I think that's pretty profound right there because that kind of describes some synesthetic relationships that I've had where the colors are wrong for a chord. Honestly, what you just described sounds very similar, although probably more pronounced than some of the experiences that I've had synesthetically when things don't align. But that is exactly it. The metaphor is wrong. There is like a disconnect between the sound and the visual that is just goes against how you perceive music. You perceive music with this high-low thing because that's the language that you speak. There's nothing in the sound that says high-low. It's just this is the metaphor that English uses to describe your sensory experiences. It's pretty crazy. Example that pops into my head, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. The line, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall. That's an ascending melody and an ascending bass line when he says minor fall. Yeah, it's funny because everything else relates to the music. <laughs> like he's on the four yeah. when he sings the the fourth, the fifth. And then the bass line goes down for the major lift. It huh. goes from six down to four. That's really interesting. Yeah. That minor fall line has this weird sort of dissonance to it that I'd never really put together. But now that I think I, this may be just like post-fact justification, very possible. But like now that I'm saying it, it makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> 
Which, again, just speaks to the power of just applying metaphors haphazardly and then insisting that you're correct with them. Yeah. I also think that could be applied intentionally. A lot of his lyricism is very kind of weird and subversive, and that kind of plays into that. Yeah, no, he he knew what he was doing. Yeah. (laughs) He was just trolling. (laughs) Like, I love whenever the lyrics play very directly into the musical language, but then also you can play against that too which is fun i'm trying to think of another example of where you're playing against it like the classic example of the lyric saying stop and then the music stops i'm trying to yeah. think of like an example where they say stop and the music doesn't stop <laughs> where you can like play into that expectation a little bit but um i'm not sure if there is one <laughs> i'm sure they're out there or or where someone like says to do something fast and the music slows down or... yeah and i mean there's songs that say the word stop and don't stop on them can't stop the rock for instance but there's also songs that say don't stop and the song stops at some point Ooh. yeah <laughs> don't stop yeah. me now ends ah yeah. <laughs> do we have any any last big thoughts on synesthesia which we've talked about very thoroughly and in depth this whole thing and yeah we've kept the thread soul focus full focus okay so if we we're going to create a youtube video with a thumbnail for this episode what would it be <laughs> okay that's a tomorrow problem yeah synesthesia i mean i think just the way if we're going to try and summarize it the way that i personally relate to music is through the lens of somebody who grew up in a culture and also through a musician lens and those two lenses greatly shape how I listen to music and my relationship to music. And I think that, you know, synesthesia is just a, one small part of that. And the broader cultural implications, the broader musical implications is, are that, you know, music is a social activity, fundamentally because we're social creatures. And so our experiences that we bring to music deeply impact our perception. And for whatever reason, sometime in my early childhood, I developed this weird relationship between musical concepts like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and colors. And I have to, I just bring that wherever I go from now on. And uh, color also impacts music somehow. That's the thesis statement of this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other thing that I took away that I found really interesting, kind of fleshing this out with you, that I think a lot of the audience should kind of take away too, is that... In my mind, synesthesia always seemed like this strange, weird, distant experience that I could only imagine. But talking more, like you said, like everyone has these kinds of relationships, these kinds of cultural and metaphorical attachments to music. And synesthesia is just a kind of particularly novel one of these. It's not anything that broadly different than a lot of the kind of metaphors that we were talking about to understand music. I agree. And that's, I've said this, I forget if I even said it here, but I think that everybody has synesthesia to some degree or another. I don't think it's that weird. It's just that, yeah, I mean, I I think that it's fundamentally a metaphorical experience of the world around us. And we all do that. All right. Corey? I'm not sure I have anything to add that y'all didn't actually already say. But yeah, I think that music is good. Did you know Corey was a singer? (laughs) Oh, yeah. Crap, did I forget to mention that? I really should have brought that up. I'm imagining that if people are listening to this, they'll know who you are, Adam. But just in case they don't, you want to plug your pluggables? Sure. Uh, Well, if you enjoy hearing somebody talk about music, keep listening to these guys. But if you really want to hear them talk more, check me out at 
Adam Neely. That's my YouTube channel, adamneely.com, youtube.com slash adamneely. Also, check out my band, Sungazer. We play jazz fusion. <laughs> Listen to my band. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a ton of fun, and I'm certain this won't be your only Ghost Notes appearance. <laughs> yeah, give me a chance to redeem myself. <laughs> the redemption episode will drop shortly. Yeah, just bring you back and do the episode where we actually talk about synesthesia. <laughs> Whatever. This was fun, though. Like, I, I know it was like scattershot, but, um, you know, this was... Scatter shots is what we do. (laughs) That's the ghost notes way. Uh, I will take any opportunity to talk music with you guys. This was a lot of fun and got me really thinking about got got some things, you know. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care.